Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick from Merrick Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Heather. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, thanks. Uh, still winter, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it'll be over eventually. Um, we are also joined today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Hi, Kim. How are you? Well, hello, Heather. Hi, Evan. How are you guys today? Amazing. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> a big lunch i am ready to go <laughs> wait you had a big lunch yep just an so, hour ago and i'm fired up for today so you're gonna fall asleep during oh no i'm oh. ready to go i wanted yeah. to be on i wanted to be sharp for today's episode because it sounds like a complicated area of the law and i don't think this is for the you know for the the people sitting back on their lazy boys eating Cheetos. I think you've got to be upright with a cup of coffee for this episode. Okay. <laughs> All right, listeners, you've been warned. Sharpen your pencils. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> uh, Access to Justice is a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health, and finance, focusing on topics that create the greatest barriers to entry in the justice system. You can find us on YouTube and on our A2J podcast channel, as well as online at a2jpodcast.com. That's a number two jpodcast.com. All right. Well, without further ado, hopefully that's gotten everybody's brains working. I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest, Melvin Marin. Hi, Melvin. How are you? How are you, Heather? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm great too. Thank you. Melvin is a lit in a immigration and litigation lawyer at Kahane Law Office in Calgary. So sort of uh, Evan's Southern counterpart, I guess. Uh, he has a wide um, and deep uh, experience in immigration, um, including working with NAFTA and intra-company transfers, study and work permits, permanent residency and citizenship applica uh, applications. Uh, Melvin has a blog and posts regularly on various aspects of immigration law um, and represents uh, people in all of those areas at Cahane Law. Um, Melvin's fluent in English, French, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, so I'm looking forward to digging into that a little bit, maybe if we can today. And outside of the office, it looks like you're a real outdoorsman. You like hiking, kayaking, mountain biking, ice skating, taking advantage of all the natural splendors around Calgary, it sounds like. Um, so without further ado, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Um, how are you doing? Doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, yeah, and I do like to do outdoor things. One of the reasons why I relocated to Alberta from Ontario, because I want to be closer to nature. And this is the best place to be. And so, I don't know, I guess you, you all of you are in Edmonton, right? So um, 
And I like Calgary because it's a bit warmer here than Edmonton. Mm. (laughs) A bit warmer. (laughs) Yeah, when you said the best place to be, my Edmonton hackles naturally came up a little bit because, you know, (laughs) the natural rivalry between the cities. But (laughs) Calgary is a beautiful city. And I think my uh, I'm jealous of of your proximity to the mountains. Yeah, Heather, Heather does travel to the mountains regularly. So she's, uh, she's with you. I think, I think outside of Vancouver, Calgary probably has the nicest, uh, scenery or, you know, cause you can see the Rockies from Calgary. So that's, that's nice. I mean, the only other big city that's really like that is Vancouver, which is, you know, Vancouver's next level compared to what we have in the prairies, but Calgary's pretty nice, pretty nice to you. They have Bray Creek for mountain biking, which is nice and close by. So I go, yeah, I actually go to Bright Creek pretty often. Mountain <laughs> <laughs> <to> biking too. <laughs> yeah, we ride bikes in Edmonton, but uh, and our, our city biking is is better than I would think it's better than Calgary. But you guys, it's not far to get to Bray Creek, and then things start to get wildly better for you guys than us. Yeah. But you have river valleys, right? Is that what it, yeah. they call it? The, the river valley, the river valley system of parks is the largest contiguous. Uh, Civic Park in North America. It's oh. bigger than Stanley Park. It's bigger than Central Park. Um, it's just, but it's like a series of connected parks through the River Valley. So, like, there's that. We got that. There you go. And if you want to get sword out a lot, we have a lot of bike paths through the city as well. So if you want drivers to give you the finger <laughs> as you're riding your bicycle, there's a lot of opportunities to do that in Edmonton as well. I'm joking. I'm joking. Our bike paths are wonderful and most of our drivers are lovely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think we're going to change topics to something that's maybe not, um, not so light. Um, we're going to try to do something a little different today and um, post a little bit about a timely topic, which is um, we're into, I suppose it's the third week now of Russia having invaded um, Ukrainian territory and the war going on there, which of course is leading to um, what millions of folks fleeing Ukraine and um, trying to get to somewhere safe. So of course, this is very timely, um, Melvin, for your line of work, because it brings up a whole lot of um, displaced folks, where they go, how they have any legal status. Um, so I wonder if we could just start there, maybe. Um, and can you let us know what's happening as far as Canada goes um, for anybody that's trying to get out of the Ukraine right now? Are there any options available for them? Yes, actually. Um, well, Phil, I'm, I'm really sorry for what's going on there. I actually have two close friends who are Ukrainians. Uh, I work with one of them in, uh, when I was in the federal government, and we're still pretty pretty close. And and so I was actually sharing with him this that the government of Canada had actually created a, what they call a, an emergency travel uh, authorization, uh, and it basically allows uh, those Ukrainians who needs to flee to come to Canada to go away from that situation to apply, and this will be a much um, faster way to uh, to come to Canada um, because it will this this application will eliminate all of the normal process or all of the normal visa requirements 
that a regular person who wants to come, or Ukrainian in this case, to come to Canada will need to uh, need. So it's 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 an easy way to come to Canada. They will be allowed to be in the country for up to two years, and then um, and they can apply for an, a war permit once they're here for an open war permit, which might open actually the door to permanent resident. The government also has another option for those who wants to be reunited with family member, as you probably heard. Canada allows to sponsor family members, so we can. Uh, but in this case, since uh, there's there's no clear uh, rules yet, the government should announce that pretty soon. But my understanding is that the government might stand the definition of family member. So they, some Ukrainians can only sponsor their spouses and dependent, but they might be able to sponsor sibling potentially. And that is a depart from what the norm is that usually a family member is not a sibling. Family member for immigration is your spouse, your parents, grandparents, and dependent children. So siblings, as much as we love them, they might not be considered family member, but this might be an option for those who have siblings. Like my friend who have actually his brother lived there, living in Ukraine, and he wants him to come to Canada on a permanent basis. And so <clears throat> they can submit his application and they will be processed probably fast. Well, faster. That's what the government has promised. So those are the options at this point, and which which to me is it's it's amazing because Probably you don't know, but uh, Ukrainians, they do need visas to enter Canada. And the process is pretty lengthy to apply for a visa or visa. Uh, I heard the Minister of Immigration to talk about why they did not lift the requirements of visa. And, and he, they, that was what many people were calling to lift the visa requirements for Ukrainians. But his explanation makes sense to me is that it takes longer because you have to make some amendments sometimes to the regulations to add where this program say they still need to apply for sort of visa, but uh -huh. the requirements will not be the same, will be uh -huh. processed differently. So they still have to get a visa, but applying under this category uh, is just expedited, it's faster? It is not only expedited, it's faster, it's also they do not have to meet the normal requirements for a visitor visa. For a visitor visa, you have to provide evidence of financial support. You have to provide tons of documentation that prove that you have strong ties to your home country, in this case, Ukraine. You have to provide probably letters of, of employer, uh, employment. So all of these requirements that in a regular visa, you you, you have to provide. And, and most important for a, 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 a visitor visa, the legal test is prove, you have to prove that you will be able to return to your home country at the end of the state in Canada. Right. So there's no that requirement. They still have to go through the process of getting the biometrics, which is just to make sure security check backgrounds. And my understanding is the government actually already have deployed um, different um, uh, offices, centers where they're going to have those Ukrainians who wants to come to Canada and apply for this uh, authorization um, to go to these centers and get their fingerprints. So, but it, it is it is it is much faster. It's it's going to be visitor visas can take a long time for someone mm -hmm. who has family in Brazil, who has family in countries where they need it. I know it takes long, long time, and usually sometimes they refuse. But I I don't see in these cases unless it's on some 
criminal background check that comes that you were involved in some sort of genocide, whatever. So right. yeah, I don't I don't I don't foresee that there will be any type of refusals for those who wants to come and meet any criminal. There's no okay. criminal background. So sounds like kind of two options that might be available. One is that uh, visitor visa, the requirements are relaxed, and that would be for someone who doesn't necessarily have ties to Canada, but is looking to get out of Ukraine. And then number two would be the, um, that sponsorship route. And those requirements are maybe going to be relaxed as well. Is, is that right? Yes. They're also, for those Ukrainians who are already here, the government is actually, uh, will allow them to stand their visitor status here and to also apply for a war permit. Oh, okay. But here, all Ukrainians that might be abroad and they might need to apply for a, a citizenship grant for adoption for, uh, or they have already a permanent resident being processed, they promise that they're going to process that faster. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Paperwork can people do on their own and when would they need to engage a lawyer? They, they can do that on their own, um, but I, I would suggest to at least get the uh, advice of an immigration lawyer so that they complete the forms, whatever form they need to complete, whatever documentation they need to submit, that they are correct, that you submitted the correct forms, the correct documentation, and I think at that point, they should get a lawyer. Okay. Well, hopefully this provides a silver lining for some Ukrainians that are able to afford to come over to Canada, um, you know, that they can find a new home here. I think, I think that's something that we like to pride ourselves in as Canadians being a wel welcoming nation and especially somewhere like Ukraine that is experiencing such devastating destruction right now. So hopefully, hopefully there's that. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. I, I, as I say or before, I have a, a close friend of mine. He's from Ukraine, and I told him, "Sorry, that is <laughs> is that he just told me his family who were in the capital. They actually have relocated to the west. Where so he, they they were planning to do that when you know before because they they were here and some things might happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so far, my understanding from my friend is that the west part of the country so far that hasn't been attacked, one of the city living. Lviv, yeah. Yeah, it's close to the Polish uh, border. They haven't been attacked, but it might happen at any time soon. Hopefully no, but yeah. But yeah, and in my this this is this is in you know, I just never expected this. This is what I understand is probably the largest number of refugees seen in Europe since Second World War. Since World War II, yeah. Yeah, there are millions of them living. Some of them might decide to stay in Europe because they Europe also has say you can stay here and apply for a work permit. So there's measures in place to help them to at least be in Europe without being without a status, be able to work, receive, you know, all type of services. Uh, but there might be some of them that might say, no, I'd rather go to Canada because I have family members there who I can rely for support, right? And that's why I step in and say, here's some of this measure for those who wants to come here. 
are your peers gearing up for a, quite a bit more volume in, in this area? Or like, have you guys been talking about preparing for this? I have told to some of my, my former boss, I talked about that. So I received initially a few calls from people who were asking me about this. And, but at that point, I was not even aware of anything. So I um, said, here's a number that the government provides. You can reach out to this number. Yeah. Um, so I think you now, even calling immigration, if you try to call immigration right now, all their lines are dedicated to deal with Afghanistan and people from Afghanistan and people from Ukraine. Uh -huh. So I'm assuming we will get, hopefully, hopefully, in the sense, know that I want to capitalize on this, but I want to help some of these people. But but I think he, some of the people might now reach out to this line and say, oh, they can help me and they're going to help me with this whole process because many of them might now be in the position to, if they are abroad, to engage a lawyer right now. Yeah. And this is what I hope is anyone here listening to this and have a family member abroad, sure, they can reach out to me, but there's a number also where they can reach out and, um, and try to find the number. Um, and I believe there's actually a number for them to reach out even when they are abroad. Yeah, here it is, 613-321-4243. I wanna repeat that, 613-321-4243. Monday to Friday, 6.30 a.m. to 7.00 Eastern Time, and it's available both inside and outside of Canada. And they accept charges for collect calls and call with reverse charges as well. Okay. So that's what, since this, I think I have seen that people probably, they reach into that number and say they probably provide all the, the help that they need. Okay. Nice. I hope they're better at answering their phones than the CRA is. I think they do. <laughs> I think they do because when I call immigration, as I say, they, right now, every single uh, officer, they, they just completely dedicated to the Aldo's customer service. Uh, okay, so uh, thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, we don't know anything about uh, immigration law and uh, especially the the you know these new categories so thanks for sharing that melvin my question is not related to that how did you end up we, we how did you end up in canada we we know how you ended up in calgary from ontario but how did you end up in canada in the first place oh well that's a very long long story short <laughs> um basically i decided to apply to law school and I was admitted initially in law school at a dual program between American University and the University of Iowa. So initially that was, uh, so uh, I was at that time working in the United States. I was a school teacher in Atlanta and I was volunteer initially, well, I was working volunteer for the uh, Latin American organization there and for the public defender office, decided to I used to come to Canada a lot, to Montreal, to Quebec, um, since I speak French, that's what I say, I love Montreal, but Montreal doesn't love me the same way. <laughs> I, I say, oh, I want to go to law school here in Canada, and I applied several times to a famous law school in Montreal, and I was always put in the waiting list. Uh... So I decided to apply to a dual degree. And that's what I get into. And that's the reason I came here to Canada. I was saying that I was already a Canadian citizen, long story. <laughs> so I thought, oh, maybe I go to my second home now. 
Oh, fascinating. And what drew you to um, the practice of immigration law? Sorry? What drew you to the practice of immigration law? Ah, oh, that's a very good one. When I came to Canada, I, well, I was involved in, in immigration when I was in the United States. Uh, I get involved with criminality and immigration, going to jail and helping some of these Spanish-speaking and French-speaking immigrants in detention. Uh, as I speak both languages and so that, you know, I started being very, you know, curious about the immigration world. Uh -huh. uh, myself, I was, I guess, stemmed from my own personal experience that I was working in the United States on what they call H-1B visa. And I went through the permanent resident process there. So I, I was curious about that. And then when I came to Canada, later on, I decided to apply for a, a, a job. And my first job was with the federal government with at that time used to we used to call a CIC Canadian Immigration Canada and I was called IRCC. So that was my first job ever in Canada was working for the immigration department in Ottawa. Uh, it was initially a contract that they extended. And um and so I I guess I don't know, and then a summary stemmed from my personal experience slash work experience right. again in immigration. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was such when, when I finished law school and I was thinking, this is a natural path for me going to immigration. And, um, and I work as a paralegal doing mostly business immigration. Uh, and I think my experience is mostly business immigration, so... I feel like I want to get an article in immigration. When I was actually seeking for article, I was offered articles in family. And I said, I don't want family. I want to go into immigration. But immigration is such a small sort of, I mean, there's very few law firms. And and yeah. the largest immigration law firms, they don't even like to hire articles. So they don't have the time. It's so, especially uh -huh. business immigration, there's no time to teach you anything. You should hit the ground running. We don't have time to teach you anything. You should know everything. And um, yeah. But. Fascinating. Okay. So that's lots of questions that came up in there. <laughs> you so. mentioned business immigration. So maybe we can start off with like a bit of an umbrella. And I know that um, we're going to end up talking a bit more in depth about spousal sponsorship. Um, but could you give us kind of a lay of the land of what that immigration umbrella covers? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in immigration, there's, I, I will divide immigration into probably four areas. Some people, some of the lawyers may say just two areas. There's okay. what we call the family-based immigration, where people usually sponsor the family members, uh, parents, grandparents, uh, people who wants to even become permanent resident or apply for a study permit on, you know, themselves. There's no any any other entity involves just a personal uh, plan. Okay. This is the business immigration. The business immigration is basically when you're dealing with corporations and companies who wants to bring foreign nationals to Canada to work. And they might need to apply for a war permit. They might need to apply for a TRP, which is a special permit for people who have some 
problems with the laws outside of Canada, but they need to still come here because there's a big project that they have to complete here. Um, so that would be business immigration. They tend to be more lucrative. And uh, some lawyers might find that a little bit boring. And there's the refugee, which you probably, I think, speak for as is a refugee, people who are coming to Canada and, and they need protection. And then uh, then I would say there's something called litigation immigration where people can, lawyers who specialize in litigating in federal court, the Immigration Refugee Board, and that would be litigation. If applications are refused sometimes, you can go and appeal, go to the Immigration Refugee Board, uh, or even a citizenship application, a work permit, you can go all the way to the federal court. And, and I say that there's these two, four areas, I would say. Again, some lawyers might say there's only two, maybe family and business immigration, or maybe three family, business immigration, and refugee. But the reason I say that is because I know that law, some law firms, when, and I experience this personally, is they say, if you're gonna focus on litigation, focus only on litigation. You're gonna do barrister work in, in immigration, or you do solicitor work in immigration, but no both. But it all depends on. So there are some law firms out there uh, in practice where they want their immigration lawyers to just be just focus on one area. You do immigration, and they. I mean, and, and I think it, it's understandable because um, sometimes if you do litigation immigration, it's gonna take so much of your time, and you're not gonna have time for solicitor work. Yeah. Huh. So, do you do both, Melvin, or you do strictly? I right now. Sorry, sorry, Evan. No. Do you do both, or do you just do solicitor? Right now, only solicitor. I don't do. I try. And, I I will say I prefer to do, and I had in the past had some experience doing litigation, um, um, but um, so far I will say solicitor. I, I'm prepared to go depending on the type of files that, that it, it, um, I might be prepared to go into litigation. We have an education bit we need to do here. So we've done over 30 episodes, Melvin, and you're the first lawyer to bring up the difference between solicitor and barrister. And for the non-lawyer crowd, we're saying, tell us more. What is the difference? That's true. That is the first time it's come up. That's funny. What the solicitor do, uh, basically, uh, opinions will review documentation, um, will review contracts and provide advice. Anything that is not involved with litigation and barrister are those who will be able to attend court and litigate matters. I think it comes from the English word, barrister, you at the bar, right? Yeah. And, uh, so that's what I was saying about immigration. The litigation lawyers do mostly barrister. I call it barrister immigration. I don't know that would be the right term, but but they use they do litigation work. That's all. They do litigation work, and there's excellent excellent litigation uh, immigration lawyers out there that they do litigation and they only like to do litigation, and they're pretty good. When I have clients that they need that, I say, look, this is you need to speak to this lawyer. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's a different skill set, right? That you're going to use in the courtroom, and and a totally different process too. You have 
all these rules and stuff in uh england i don't we were talking about before we started recording the difference between um england and the united kingdom and how that all works great britain I, and i don't know about the rest of great britain but i know it in england uh it's probably the same in the rest of the uk but in england they have um it's one or the other you're either a barrister or a solicitor right whereas here in canada uh you're both well at least in alberta shouldn't talk about i don't know all the provinces but um and I, I, it's funny when the my principal told me that he had a client like bragging to one of his friends like my lawyer is a barrister and a solicitor and uh he didn't have the heart to tell him that we all are but <laughs> i think the reason there was historical reason for that geographical reason canada can now have like in England, barrister and solicitor being a small country mm-hmm. in in the uk you can go and say i need to find a barrister or a solicitor where here in canada my you know the only barristers you know 10 hours away right is yeah I, i might be wrong but i heard that was one of the reasons why we never made that distinction in canada Mm-hmm. still have that that makes a lot of sense you can brag and say we're solicitors and barrister <laughs> that's right <laughs> so fancy <laughs> uh if well i mean we're kind of returning to in-person things but um if any of our listeners ever attends a courtroom in person many of them still have an actual bar at the front of them and the lawyers sit in front of that physical bar whereas people who are not called to the bar or are not barristers and solicitors um would sit in um the rows of seating behind the bar so um maybe even if you're watching TV, you can look for that and see if they have the bar or not. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. That is an excellent overview. It sounds like there's a lot of, I mean, there's a really wide scope and breadth of stuff that you would do then and encounter. Cause you've got sort of, you mentioned the refugee claims, family claims, work, and then business, um, the litigation stuff, which would probably have to do, like you mentioned, some of the stuff you were doing in the States, maybe with criminality, deportation. So really a, a massively wide net. So, um, maybe we can move on to some of the areas that what what do you what areas do you encounter most frequently or do you think that people want to know the most about spousal is one of those that's when i choose this topic okay we suggest uh, you suggest me what topic i think this is actually pretty common and um, i was myself surprised actually to learn that there in the immigration work one of the most common application where we actually have more clients is in the family sponsorship usually a lot of people for some reason want to sponsor a foreign national to come to canada things like that. and and in in these days you know it's pretty common people travel a lot they have many of these applications where you meet people online mm-hmm. and so they meet the special one that all they have in another continent and then they suddenly say I want to be with that person and that's when they come to us and say how can I bring this person to be here in Canada and sometimes it's easier 
when the person is from a country where they are exempted from securing a visa. So they don't need to, to come to Canada. They don't need to obtain a visa to come to Canada. But then sometimes this process might be a little bit painful for some people because they're a special person, a special one, their spouse or boyfriend, uh, girlfriend, common law partner, they are from a country where they do need a visa to come to Canada. And once they try to apply some time for a visitor visa, and the minute if they try, they, they have to be honest and they say, well, I want to go and visit my boyfriend or my spouse. We got married here. And the minute they say that, the government say, refuse because the chances of you remaining in Canada are extremely high because your spouse, your common law partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend is actually in Canada. So that makes it extremely hard and some people feel very frustrated because they apply for visitor visas one, two, three times, got refused and they say, how can I get reunited with this person? And I say, let's apply for a permanent resident. That might be an option if you want to be reunited. Apply for a permanent resident. It's called spousal sponsorship, common law partner sponsorship. Yeah. So why, why um, so if that's an option, is there a reason you wouldn't just start with applying for permanent residency? Is it harder to get, to take longer? Like, why would you start with the uh, going for the visitor visa first? Well, sometimes people, they, they meet someone in, in another country and they feel like, uh, you know, I'm going to take things slow and I yeah, meet yeah, this person. <laughs> I just want to spend some time. I want, and they go to their, you know, I had clients that meet someone in the Philippines and they go to the Philippines, they visit and they say, well, now I want my girlfriend to come and visit me and spend some time here in Canada. I want her to meet my family and they apply and visa refuse. And, and I say, continue and applying because that actually demonstrate the, the application. I use the application actually to demonstrate that they actually in a genuine relationship. Why going through all this hustle if you're not really in love with this person and you really care about this person, right? But that's the reason, Evan, that some people might decide to apply is that they're not yet ready to be married. And we're going to talk about that. They're not yet ready to be married they might not be common law partners yet. And in order to sponsor someone to apply for permanent residence, they have to either be married, be a common law partner, and we have to find, you know, establish the definition of what is a common law partner for immigration, or be what we call conjugal partners. So if you're not, a, if you're not married, common law partner, or you don't fall in that definition of conjugal partner, then you cannot sponsor that person. You cannot sponsor your boyfriend. I would say to people, you cannot sponsor your boyfriend. You cannot sponsor your girlfriend. You can invite your girlfriend to come to Canada or your boyfriend to come to Canada, but you cannot sponsor them. They know your wife. They know your husband. They know your common law partner. Ah. That's why they would need the visitor. And that's why they yeah. decide, well, let's apply first for a visitor visa. Not ready yet. And not ready yet for the next step. Right, right. I'm going to say, get to know each other a little bit yeah, first, yeah. Evan. Yeah. Slow down. Slow down. <laughs> I'm just thinking about my own experience. So uh, I met my wife in England and she's from Spain. And uh, she came to visit and then she never left afterwards. So she came to visit. We got married a month later. And then started the immigration proceedings. She's from Spain, so she didn't need a visa. 
And once you start, I mean, and this was 20 years ago. So I, I like, I don't know what it's like now. And I wasn't a lawyer back then, but it was the case then that once you start that uh, permanent residency application and you're married, um, that there, we didn't have any issues. We crossed the borders after we got married. We went to Spain the next month for a, a reception there and had no problem re-entering Canada. We brought, we'd already submitted our application. We brought a copy of it so they could see and everything like that. And, and luckily it was okay. I did it, you know, I was just some young punk, just fill out the forms on my own. Yeah, everything worked out, but yes. Yeah. So I was just thinking that, you know, that's what I was thinking like, oh, why don't you just start with the permanent residency application? But obviously if you meet somebody online and you want to get to know them better. You don't want to just jump right into permanent residency application because there's a couple of things that I want you to cover Melvin about that. Number one, I just want to back up for a sec so you can give us the definition of conjugal partner and common law partner, because I know if people have been listening to this and they've, we've talked about common law or common law partnerships or adult interdependent relationships, mm -hmm. that's a specific thing. That's Alberta specific. Mm -hmm. And I know it's different for that. So I want to get that. But then I also want to know um, the, you know, the, the requirements for that permanent residency and, and, and how that works. So what's a, what's a common law partner as far as immigration is concerned? Well, common law partner, I'm literally reading here from the definition from the regulation. Um, I can tell you that without the regulation, but the regulation basically say that common law partner means it's a, a relationship to a person. In sorry, it means in relation to a person, an individual who is cohabitated with the person in a conjugal relationship, having so cohabitated for a period of at least one year. One That's year. Okay. So yeah, I always explain this to my client. Common law partner, you have to be cohabitated with that person for at least one year. You have to prove that you either cohabitated in the past for one year or you already reached that one year cohabitation, right? You currently cohabitated with that person. And this is very important. And then your relationship is like that of being married. The only thing is you don't have a marriage certificate, but every single thing your financial affairs, your personal, everything is mixed into, you know, into one. You are like married couple, except that you don't have this marriage certificate. Now, we had a file that we shared. You had mm -hmm. me help you out on some things for, for that client who this was one of their challenges um, because I can't remember all the details perfectly, but they weren't quite meeting the, the absolute perfect technical definition, but, uh, your argument was, but well, well, come on, like they, they were interdependent in the way that they functioned financially and, and so forth. And this guy was not long for this world and he just wanted to be reunited with his partner. And so it was a, a sympathetic type of application as well. I mean, do you remember about that? And can you talk a little bit about how it can get complicated sometimes? Yeah, it, it can get complicated when people, if you claim that you have a common law partnership and um, it can get complicated if the, there's no evidence that shows this relationship. Sometimes they might have, it gets a bit complicated when also people they have cohabitated for a year or two, but it has been in the past. 
and they they think he were, but that was in the past. We now separated. I submitted a, last year an application from you know this pe person who was in a common law relationship with a gentleman in Costa Rica, and uh, but they have to separate. I still was able to argue that they were common law partner, although they now separated because um, I proved that there was a one-year cohabitation. But going back to what you were saying, it can get complicated when you don't have any documentation to prove that, that there's no, um, for instance, joint account, there's no evidence that they have uh, lived together and, and here's a lease agreement that we both signed and we have property together. Uh -huh. uh, we have met each other families. Uh, where is the evidence that I usually use that? Where is the evidence that you file taxes together? And, it's, and then you declare yourself common law partner. Um, I, where's the evidence that you were living together? Here's the address, here's a driver's license from you, and here's another government document that shows the same address. That's why it gets a bit complicated because uh -huh. they, they don't have evidence of that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Would you want me to? Yeah, no, no, that's that's good. Usually the lack of documents to prove that's what I've seen is the lack of documentation. I've seen that many of them live together. It's just they never expected. They never planned to eventually, they never organized their lives, does that make sense, in a way to, I need to prove later on a common law relation. They were just living together, organically happens. Some people say, I don't need to have a joint account. And, and so that might be the case. And, and I have submitted applications where there's no sufficient evidence, but I provide them with some, I ask them to sort of statutory declaration that they were living together, although there's no evidence. Um, so I ask them to, I ask the family members to write a letter confirming that they were cohabitated together, huh. despite of not having sufficient other type of financial evidence of that cohabitation. Hmm. Does it matter where the couple was cohabiting? Is it typically outside of Canada? Sorry, I feel like that's a dumb question, but I'm not sure. Uh, like someone could come come to Canada on a visitor visa and meet someone here and wind up living here for a year and then applying, or they could meet elsewhere outside of Canada and then apply. Are those different situations? Are they treated equally? Do they have different challenges? They might have different challenges depending on the country in terms of finding the documentation, but but they're they not treated differently. Whether you are a common law partner living in Canada yeah. or a common law partner living in Costa Rica or China, or, it doesn't matter. Okay. As long as we have the documentation to prove that cohabitation of one year. Okay. I think yeah, I missed to mention the definition of conjugal partner. That doesn't happen often, but conjugal partner, but a lot of, I have seen many people who made their mistakes. Conjugal partner is when the foreign national, that person that you love, you want to be with, is living outside of Canada. You in a conjugal relation with this, this person is in a conjugal relation with you, the, the Canadian or permanent resident. And you have been in this relation for one year, but this person is living outside Canada and there's something, either some immigration issues, some other laws that prevent you from being together. 
prevent you from being together. And this is in this um, is a lot of people for some reason they submit these applications and they claim that they conjugal partner and the applications are later refused. And then they come to me and say, why? I'm a conjugal partner. And I say, how is it your conjugal partner? And they don't understand. Well, they say, we, we cannot be together. I say, well, you are in Canada. Where is your partner? Well, my partner is in the United States. Okay. And why you don't live together? Well, because I don't want to quit my job. And the other person does not want to quit the job yet. But that's a choice. The conjugal partner is when you are separated and there's things that, that are beyond your control that keep you separated. And I say, choosing to stay in Canada for your job is your decision. If the other person is staying there, that's the decision. You could decide to live together. And once you live together for one year, then you will be considering common law partners, but you're choosing not to. Does that make sense? Uh, so uh, it has to be an outside factor that's keeping you apart, but you it, would be if you could. Exactly, uh. exactly. And I have many applications where people kind of say, why well, was refused? That happens during the pandemic. There was a lot of people who applied. So I have a few applications during the pandemic where people apply and they were separated. And they say, well, we are separated because... Uh, he or she cannot move here. And then um, I say, you could move there. You have to really prove there. I mean, most of the case, gotta be that you cannot enter that country. He cannot come here. But in most of this case, they could move there. It's just they choosing not to. And sometimes people choose that for financial reasons. They wanna keep their job, education, but that's a choice. And as Evan say, have to be something out of your control. Usually these laws, usually, is there's a laws that prevents there from getting married. Maybe they are married in that country, but they cannot get divorced. Maybe it is because a lot of same-sex partners and they don't uh, recognize same-sex relation in that country. Uh, they cannot go there and get married. It's illegal to get married there. So there has to be something far and beyond of you know, their, their control to, to claim conjugal partnership. As I say, it's not very common. M the most common situation is either you are married or you're in a common law relationship. And I always say to people, if you have the, you might not want to get married, but you can always become a common law partner if you have the option to. Ah, uh, okay. Right. Unless you don't have the option to become common law partner which then you will find that you will fall in that category conjugal partner mm. if you prove this completely out of your control okay i'm going to go back and actually still scoop up the spouse category as well because i have a question there are all marriages automatically recognized like spouse we got married here's the wedding photo check mark application granted <laughs> uh, i wish that could be that way no. <laughs> I, I don't know if i should be using this legal jargon of legal test no i think he maybe i keep it simple it's ultimately what the government wants or the officers looking when they see your application is they want to determine whether your relationship is genuine mm -hmm. it's just because you have a marriage certificate does not mean that you actually in a genuine relationship. Just because you have all this bunch of documents doesn't mean, of course, having a marriage certificate, having robust documentation is, it 
lead, probably might lead the officer to believe, oh, he's in a, or she, or they are in a general relationship. But it's, it's important to submit robust documentation, not just a marriage certificate. In the case of someone who is married, the marriage certificate. But you also want to submit robust documentation that shows that you are in a relation. Here's my joint account. Here's the property that we both uh, untitled. Here's our credit card. We have credit card uh, together. Here's uh, uh, evidence that we filed taxes together. So there's a lot of evidence. Here's the photos together. Lots of photos. Don't underestimate the power of photos and uh, the power of photos that shows here's my partner and i and my spouse and here's a photo together showing a little bit of affection but also photos with family members you know make sure that when you submit the photos the people in those photos are people that you know because if you go and <laughs> and the officer might say, okay, who is this person here? Who is this person here? I don't even know who this person is. Not only photos of you and your spouse, but photos of you, your spouse, and your in-laws. Because that shows the officer, usually when you're in a genuine relationship, your in-laws will know about your relationship. Right. Your in-laws will know about the relationship. It's It's public. It's public. Everybody knows about your relationship. So it's important to submit all of these uh, uh, photos. Photos, are, and, and now these days with social media, I always include even um, a screenshot of Instagram, Facebook. Uh, the, here's the photos that I posted. And all my friends liked the photos when I was with my spouse, when I was celebrating Christmas, birthday. Everybody likes the photo and say, you're such a wonderful couple. We're just gonna see that. That's that's smart because um, that's date stamps too. So if the relationship is legitimate and it's been going on for a while, then you can see like, well, here's a picture of us at Christmas two years ago, and you know, blah blah, yeah, and all the comments and stuff are date stamps. So that's nice. I mean, when you were listing off the evidence to provide, I was like, I didn't have any of that when I applied. But then you said photos, and that's we did have photos. So I think that's probably what. Um, saved up my application so yeah that's uh i bet people don't always think people probably discount how important photos are yeah photos are very important actually i would say um i have actually i, I have this list where i would say you know there's photos i would say when you look into the list of uh, the government they say no more than 20 photos and i say man eh, they just look Send them all. If you want, if, yeah, if you have, I mean, not a hundred, but if you have sufficient, a lot of photos that shows, you know, that your relationship is legitimate. Here's photos that shows the day that you have your first date, the day that you propose, the day that you get married, you have your first kid, when you had Christmas together, your first Christmas, your first anniversary. I mean, show all those photos, photos with friends, show all of those photos because that is speaking bonding about your relationship. Mm. Uh, I, I have seen relationship refused in the past. And you'd be surprised. You might think, how do the people where they submit a photo of themselves alone? Uh, <laughs> there's no photo. I'm not kidding. And there's no photos of any family member. Um, so it's, that is important. Yeah. So that will, I think if you do that, like you were saying, Helen, I mean, just because you marry, this is no guarantee. Oh, marriage certificate done. Uh, 
we're going to approve this application. Uh, for those who are not married or in a common law relationship, make sure that you submit evidence that you are in a common law relationship, that you have cohabitated for that one year. Because remember, that's that you have to prove that you have been together for at least one year. So it's right. that that evidence shows that mm -hmm. that documentation shows that you have been living together for one year. Otherwise, your application will be refused. For those who are married, they don't need to prove that one year cohabitation is enough to be married. Right, as long as it's a genuine. As long as it's genuine, exactly. And so I would say this officer look every single application with a eyes. Oh, I think he, everybody here is just after try to get some immigration benefit. Unfortunately, sometimes depending what's the country of origin of your spouse, you know that might play some kind of small role in the whole process. I mean, uh, I hope the immigration officers are. And I, my hope is they know using some bias, and if they do, there's, you know, recourse, and we can right. go more. But um, yeah, but that happens. I mean, if you espouse this from a country where the political stability or economic situation is not the best, and Canada mm -hmm. seems appeals a better place, um, then be prepared to show the officer my spouse is no after me because he or she wants to get to Canada. Mm. He or she's with me because she loves me, not because she wants to be in Canada. Right. And so it's important to submit that type of information and when we submit the application. And if, sorry, and if you're in a conjugal partner, we, we talk about when you separated for things that are beyond your control, then make sure that you explain that. What are those things that are preventing you from being together? What is it? There's a law in place that preventing you to be together. So, but also you have to show that there's, for conjugal partner, I, I should have mentioned this, that you also have to show that there's uh, some level of attachment and emotional attachment for at least one year. You have been with that, not just physical, otherwise yeah. it's just this interdependent you're not with that person. You cannot be with that person, but it's a level of in interdependency. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's good you mentioned that because I think if you just say conjugal, what I think about is conjugal visits if you're in prison, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I know from prison break means you're having sex in the, in the conjugal <laughs> visit room. So uh, what you're saying is, no, it's not just about sexual relationship. It's about that uh, interdependency, emotional interdependency, and like an, a legitimate relationship that you can't be together uh, because of some external factor. That's right. And there's interdependency in the sense that this person probably sends money. They've been in a relation for two years. They cannot be together, but every month you call that person. So not every month, but every month you send money to that person mm -hmm. to ensure that that person is you know, have, you know, financial stability, whatever they are. Um, every every time, any anniversary, uh, every birthday, you're there, you call all the time. So there's that emotional interdependency, as I said. Mm -hmm. okay, what would be the typical timeline if people do everything right? Let's say they fill out the documents right, they've got all the pictures and all the definitions in place. What's the timeline it would take for somebody to get that stamp saying you're you're in, come on? Uh, right now, it's one year for in Canada applications. It's one year with the pandemic. 
Um, even with the pandemic, the government was processing these applications within one year, um, which is good. Uh, same thing is for outside Canada application is one year. However, my experience is with outside Canada application is the applications are processed faster. That's those in Canada. Oh. Much faster. No. I've seen that. Oh, eight months, you get an outside Canada application versus in Canada can take one year or a bit more, 14 months. Yeah. This is my this is my theory for that. You can tell me if you agree with it or not, Melvin. My theory is if you're inside Canada, they're taking their time because usually what they do or you know what they can do is they can they'll issue a work visa and like a study, study permit, work permit within if within six months or so. Uh-huh. And then like, they'll take their time because you're already together. Whereas if you're outside the country and it's more of a priority because, you know, you want to be reunited with the person that you're not with at the time. But is that the idea or uh, am I just, I, just make that I, up? That's, that's the same theory I have. <laughs> it's like that you are already together. And when you do an in-Canada application, you're also eligible to apply for an open work permit. Like that was the case with your uh, spouse, um, Evan. She was, uh, she's from Spain. She came here and once she she came here as a visitor, you get married and then you apply in Canada. And that's doable today too. Someone can come, get married here and then apply in Canada. And then they can apply for an open work permit once they do an in Canada application. And when you do this outside Canada, you're not eligible for this open world permit, obviously, you're outside Canada. But I think the reasoning behind is that they separate. Let's, let's reunite these people as soon as possible. They love each other. Let's reunite this couple. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be. It might be. Immigration Canada are a bunch of romantics. That's what it is. Maybe that, but also there can be also with the process. And there's a lot more pro- applications, a lot of applications being right. processed here in Canada. Um, might be another reason, but yeah, might be the reason. And and, and that helps, you know, people want to get together as soon as possible. But that that's actually to go to back to your question, Kim. I think he, I would say one year, one year for an inside, probably a bit less for an outside Canada application, probably a bit less. And if you had to guess for our Ukrainians coming in on the emergency authorization travel plan, you think that they would maybe try and speed that up by half a year? Or I guess maybe you wouldn't know yet. With this authorization, it's more like a visitor visa. And I think that would not be even... A visitor visa is processed in, in, in a month, in, in weeks. And for uh-huh. this Ukrainian, probably would be weak. Now, those Ukrainians who are applying to sponsor their family member for permanent resident, I would say probably they, they will be caught in a month, maybe, hopefully. Wow. Hopefully, I mean, uh-huh. that's what they promised, but we'll see, right? Uh-huh. Now that, that brings us to a, a category that we haven't talked anything about yet, and that is refugee category. Um, what is it? How does that work? I know. So my only exposure to this type of immigration law was, again, while I was in England, I, I met a lot of refugees. I was there in the early 2000s. There was a lot of people fleeing Zimbabwe, and England was one of the places, the UK was one of the places that they could go and show up with no visa, nothing, and start the application process after they're there because they were a former former Commonwealth country is the way I understood it. Mm-hmm. How does it work for Canada if somebody is coming here to um, claim refugee status? How do they enter the country and how does that all work? 
As I said, I don't know much about refugee. I, okay. <laughs> but as far as I know, someone, yeah, I, I really not an expert on refugee law. Uh, but in order for you to claim some sort of protection in this country, you have to get here. There's different, you have to get to Canada. Um, there are also programs where there's what we call a private sponsorship and the government sponsor. So the government sponsors okay. certain refugees like we did with the Syrians and they are sponsored by the government. Hmm. So the government of Canada and other countries like Australia, United States, they are assigned to bring certain foreign nationals to Canada as refugees. That's the case with the, F the F Syrian refugees. They sponsored by the government. They brought here the government. Once they get here, they're already permanent resident. The government has already many things in place, like housing, um, language services, help with job placement. That's one. The other ones are people who I actually volunteer, I do a little bit about it because I do some volunteer and on that, is uh, private sponsorship. So five members, five Canadian citizens, sorry, Canadian citizens or permanent resident, they can actually get together and say, we're going to sponsor a refugee. So they, together, these five people who are Canadian citizens, permanent residents, they can decide we're going to sponsor a refugee who is right now in Uganda or in Afghanistan or some Afghan refugee who is right now in Lebanon in Turkey or some Ukrainian refugee. To do that, the person that you want to sponsor has to be considered a refugee by United Nations. They have to have a card and they literally have a card, like an ID that from the United Nations that say you have refugee status. Mm -hmm. So these five people in Canada can get together and do that. I do this as a volunteer. There's an organization here. They always ask lawyers that they don't have to have any experience in immigration uh -huh. to help with this. Because uh -huh. there are many people who want to bring refugees. Some of them are family members. They came here as a refugee in the first place but they still have family members abroad living in refugee camps or living in countries, but they don't have any status in those countries. They still consider them refugee. Right. And I say, how can I bring my How can I bring my brother? Remember what I said earlier is that you cannot sponsor your siblings. And there's some exception, but generally you cannot. So say, but I still want to bring my brother to Canada. He cannot get a visa to get into an, get in an airplane and, ask for protection once they get yeah. from Canada. How can I bring them? So they say, well, here's an option is if they know it's sponsored by the government, you can find other four more people and you, and then you can sponsor them. Find four more people, they not gonna get, they have this other people, they have to meet certain criterias and requirements. And, um, and, and but yeah, that, oh. that's doable. That's doable. That's interesting. Can we return to the spousal sponsorship for a moment? No. I just want to close that. Want to close that off a little bit. So I have two questions on that one. Number one, kids. What if you become pregnant or have a child somewhere in, leading up to that um, application? Does that does that rate? Does that factor in at all, or is it just sort of a piece of evidence that goes to um, the genuineness of the relationship? 
if you become pregnant after you submit your application or the I, well whenever i don't know <laughs> well, you, I, I, let me see if i can uh, add a little bit more to it like i think heather's talking about so you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend well i guess if you're the girl you've got a boyfriend that's the only way you can get pregnant and uh you're together whatever you get pregnant does that factor into now being able to sponsor uh that boyfriend to come over does that like does that take it to the next level enough to be um oh yeah yeah thank you yeah you're not married you're not cohabitated but you're gonna have a child or have a child together does that wait you know mary you know common law partner but you have a child yeah. You still cannot yeah. sponsor. That's the answer. Oh, okay. I think you would need to go to the the definition. You can only sponsor uh -huh. your spouse. Yeah. Common law partner, common yeah. partner. If okay. you have a child with your boyfriend, sorry, with your girlfriend, your girlfriend is pregnant. She's yeah. your girlfriend. She's still not your wife. Okay. She's not your common law partner. Now, if she were your common law partner or your spouse, yes, it will. It will. We will mention that we will provide evidence that there's a child. If most likely this child will be already a Canadian citizen, because if there's a sponsor, and I'm assuming that the sponsor, in order for you to be a sponsor, you have to be a Canadian citizen, right? Right, or permanent resident. Mm -hmm. Now, if the sponsor happens to be a Canadian citizen, then the, that child's already a Canadian. So mm -hmm. that child does not need to be sponsored. Mm -hmm. He's already a Canadian citizen, being Canadian citizen by descent. Now, if the sponsor happened to be a permanent resident, yeah, he will have to sponsor that child because he's not a Canadian. He cannot pass his Canadian. He doesn't have that Canadian citizen. And it will play a, it will play a, uh, it will certainly help with the application. Having a child might show that your relationship is genuine, but not always. I have had applications that has been refused, even with the child, with even with the spouse having a child. I had oh. seen it, no myself had it, but seeing this when I was working, the applications that were refused because of that. Uh, the officer had no doubt that the child was, um, you know, this child, yeah, is, is your child, you are a Canadian citizen, uh -huh. but I don't think your relationship with this lady is genuine she probably entered into this relationship. Um, so I've seen that. It's not very common. Usually uh, they will see that is a sign that your relationship is genuine, that it is a sign that your relationship is genuine. But I've seen that in some situations, the officer, and they can ask for, um, happens in an application in Asia where they even ask for a DNA mm -hmm. to, to make sure that the child, it is actually your child. They could, and it's, it's, they they have that property in the office. Say, I need I need evidence that you know this is your child, and because they have doubt about the genuineness of the relationship. Right. So, right. Yeah. The okay. answer, I think yeah, your child will you you can mention you can certainly will help will strengthen your application and prove that it's genuine if you have a child. But it just because you're having a child doesn't mean you can sponsor. You have to be still okay. married or common law partner. Or you still have to fit into you one of those three it, definitions. It's, oh, oh, yeah. Otherwise, you cannot sponsor. I have a lot of people say, yeah, I have these people, but we're not married yet. We're not a, can, we, can I sponsor her? You say, not yet. Good. I'm, right. I'm not here to tell you go and get married. That's not mine. <laughs> 
It's, if it's not your personal philosophy, I don't want you to say Melvin told me to get married. But if you know, at least start living together. We uh-huh. can find another option for your girlfriend uh, to remain in Canada. Uh-huh. If, if they're in Canada or to come to Canada if she's not in Canada. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that's that definitely answers my question. Because mm-hmm. they, wouldn't, they wouldn't fit under the family uh, category either, right? No, the family category will be, again, you know, to sponsor family members, your spouse, common law partner, your parents, your grandparents, and your independent children. And yeah. dependent is those who are under 22 and married, right? right. If you don't fall in one of this. And yeah. Again, my, your child might be a, perma, a citizen already. You know, if, if I have a child in, in Brazil, uh-huh. <laughs> I have a girl from Brazil and I have a child there, my child will be Canadian because I'm Canadian. That doesn't mean that I can sponsor my girlfriend. I need yeah. to be married to yeah. sponsor her or be, again, in this common law relationship. Fall in one of those two. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, second question is, and I think you've drawn a bit of the differences there, um, but the, once that person is sponsored, they get PR or permanent resident status in Canada. Um, what does that bring that person and how is that different from citizenship? Very good question. Being a permanent resident gives you, gives the person basically the right to live work, study, move anywhere in Canada, uh-huh. uh, you will enjoy pretty much all of the benefits that any other Canadian citizen might have, except the right to vote, to run for election, and to hold a passport, right? So um, so that will be the main difference is that as a permanent resident, you will know, you're not a Canadian citizen, you have the right to live here, to work, study here, but you don't have the right to have a, perm- uh, a passport, Canadian passport to vote. And here's the thing, a permanent resident can be taken away from you, right? When you're a permanent resident, you have an obligation to live in Canada, resident obligation, that's what we call it. It's an IRPA, and the immigration app say you have the obligation to be in Canada 730 days out of every five years. If you're not physically in Canada, 730 days, which is about two years, not exactly, but close to it's the two years out of every five years, then you're not meeting the resident obligation. So that means if you're not meeting the resident obligation from the law, then we can take your permanent resident status away. If you commit some sort of offense that is considered serious, and we're not going to get into that, Uh then we can take your permanent resident away. Right now, yeah. there was actually um, changes to the law, to the, so in here in Canada, we had changes to, you know, driving and drinking. And now getting a DUI is considered very serious. And a lot of permanent resident might lose the permanent resident. I don't know if you heard this um, morning, I heard about the case of this gentleman from India who happens to be the driver who killed the, uh, hockey team in Saskatchewan, the Humboldt um, yeah. Broncos. Yeah, the Broncos. Thank you, Evan. And I don't know if you heard in the news. He was a permanent resident, not a citizen. So he's going to go to jail, and after he finishes his sentence, he will be removed from Canada. So his permanent resident status is going to be taken away because mm-hmm. of serious offense. Mm-hmm. Now, 
the lawyers, this is a litigation immigration lawyer, they might have an opportunity to appeal federal court. You might still appeal or ask to, you know, that I can stay in Canada on a humanitarian, compassionate reason and maintain my permanent residence. Right. Humanitarian. But if nothing happened, if the humanitarian compassion are not granted, yeah. and when federal court, they don't win, then he will be removed. So his permanent resident will be taken away. Have he been a citizen of Canada? You cannot, you cannot take, you cannot take away a, a citizenship. Right. Your citizenship is granted and you're a citizen, whether you commit a very heinous, horrible offense, you're still a citizen. Right. Right. Okay. Thank you for answering that. Yeah, yeah, and that happens a lot. Actually, you'd be surprised how many that I have a lot of those, and I write legal opinions on that, uh -huh. send it to judges, and I have a lot of criminal. I like that. That's what I do a little bit of the litigation, and that's right. Uh -huh. A little bit close into getting closer to that is that many criminal defense lawyers reach out to me and ask for legal opinions where they have clients who are permanent residents of Canada, but they have been charged with some serious criminal offense. And so we try to explain to the judge what might happen depending on if they are sentenced to go to jail for up to six months, even if it's not serious, six months in jail, it's a big problematic for a permanent resident because that um. might leave for you to be removed from the country. So they get in jail, six months later on, they get this letter from Canada Border Service Agency. They say, we want to remove you from this country. Would the, just procedurally, would that person typically be removed, right, when they're released from custody? Or is there more of a process? Like, how would they be appealing that under agency humanitarian and compassionate grounds while they're in custody? Or would they have the opportunity to do that afterwards? They will have an opportunity to appeal depending on whether there's grounds there. Uh. Okay. Again, if it's a serious offense, there's more than yeah. six months in jail. They cannot even they cannot but they cannot argue agency consideration. Oh, I see. Interesting. So they would just be removed when they're released, and yeah, that's what is important. That when we someone is in that situation, we try to tell the judge how important it is for them to get a sentence of less than six months or sometimes for their criminal defense lawyer to try to negotiate with the Crown uh, and get something, a lesser sentence or offense that is less. Yeah. Is serious um, because that, you know, it, uh -huh. it, it, it made the difference between being removed from Canada or not. Yeah. And some of these people, they have been already for several years. Like this guy who, you know, caused this you know, accident. He, I believe he has been in Canada for a long, long time since he was a child. I'm not sure, but I think he was. So, and there you go. So you've never been in India, but you're still not a citizen of this country. You go, yeah. you go home. And I think there was also an, another case in Montreal. It was this, um, it was, uh, I think he was from, I don't remember the country, I think it was Central America. And he grew up in Canada, but they never applied for citizenship. He get, you know, doing bad things, get into uh -huh. one of this serious offense, and uh -huh. yeah, 
you want to be. I think at the end of the day, they did not remove him on some humanitarian and compassionate reasons. They appealed uh-huh. to say, look, this, this, child, this person I've been in Canada all, all his life. This is the only country they know. Uh-huh. I always tell to my clients, once you become a permanent resident, considering applying for citizenship as soon as you're eligible. Some people say, no, well, well I don't need the citizenship. Right. So you didn't apply for citizenship because... I don't know. I know you're not a criminal. You might be getting involved in something in the future, and then you will regret now being in that situation. Yeah, it, right. It, apply for citizenship as soon as you're eligible to. Mm. I've certainly had that issue come up rarely, but as a consideration on family law files, um, particularly where there's been domestic violence and one person might have charges laid against them, and then considering... The family law situation, the criminal and the immigration law situation altogether becomes very difficult because the person might want to see a prosecution or a conviction because of the criminal matters, but they also don't want the other parent of their child necessarily to be permanently removed from the country. So it's it's a very complicated kind of situation for um, the folks involved and I think for the law um, to navigate. So really, it's very interesting, very interesting and difficult um, things to be weighing and figuring out. Yeah, I think the whole idea behind is we we don't want those people who are no citizen of Canada who had done bad things to be in our society. I think that's that's the why we have this law in place. Right. right. Is that we don't want those people who have committed horrible things to remain in Canada if uh-huh. you're not a citizen. Uh-huh. But, um, but when they have lives and families and it, and jobs and yeah. Yeah. And so on that theme of family law and immigration, another place that it overlaps uh, can be and I, I get this question from time to time Melvin of okay how I'm a permanent resident and like if I get divorced my like my my spouse is my sponsor if I get divorced am I kicked out of the country there yeah that that happens our family lawyers as you know I can't always ask me that question um once you sponsor the short answer is if you're already a permanent resident and you get divorced no, you're not going to be cut of this country. Just because you end your relationship doesn't mean that you're already a permanent resident. You're already a permanent resident of Canada. You are not going to lose your permanent resident because you end your relationship. That's that's the short answer. That being said, though, if you enter into this relationship for the purpose of getting immigration benefits, some officer, and, and that happens, so... The, the, the end of the relationship that has happened a lot, that they got, they become permanent resident. Once they become permanent resident, she got to Canada. And the next week, she broke up with me. She ended. She, she left. I came home and she wasn't there. She went to live with families and other relatives in Toronto. She just was after me to become a permanent resident. As soon as she got her permanent resident, she get here. And the next week, she went to live with her family. And that happens. That happens more often. And I say, what can, can we just, and they call me and say, can would you take, I want you to help me to take her permanent resident status away. Because, I mean, I imagine they feel like they invested all their, you know, love, energy, time, probably money in lawyers, 
And uh -huh. now this person now took advantage of me. And I said, look, you cannot take the permanent resident status away. You cannot do it. You can report, but you have to be mindful. You're going to report this and the immigration will start, not even, not even Immigration Canada, Canada Border Service Agency will start an investigation to determine whether this relation was a relation of convenience or not. And, and you might be called as well. So they might find you knew about this. You knew that this person, so it's not for me, I would say, it's not for you. This will be for, you know, the proper authorities, this case, Canada Border Service needs to investigate that and to determine whether this, she should be removed from Canada because she lies, she misrepresents the information. Right. She should be banned. And not only we're going to take her permanent resident away, ban you from coming to Canada for the next five years. And I say, yeah, it's up to them. She can still appeal the decision. She's a permanent resident. She can go and appeal the decision. So this be prepared for a long process. And, yeah. And uh, be absolutely sure that you're not going to be implicated in this fraud. Yeah, exactly. That's right. one of the things. Another thing that I, I have seen with families that a lot of people, when they... <clears throat> They get divorced, they they sponsor someone. Now I, I sponsor this person, now we separated. Am I still responsible for this person? Am I still have to provide? Because when you when you sponsor this person to come to Canada, you also sign an agreement, an undertaking with the government. And that undertaking say that you, the sponsor, will be responsible for three years from the time that this person become permanent resident, you'll be responsible for three years. That's your undertaking, three years. If this person that you sponsor, who is now a permanent resident, apply for social assistance, government might go after you for that money because you're responsible for those first three years. And so a lot of people ask me questions say, well, we got married, everything was good, but two years after, she became, we get divorced, well, we separated. I mean, do I still have to? And I say, yeah, you're still responsible. It doesn't matter whether you get divorced, separated, that three year, you're responsible for three years, regardless of whether you get divorced, you get separated. And, and there are some cases already in family law where the court actually had grant um, um, spousal um, support in cases like this, because you brought this person into Canada, you sign an undertaking. Um, and so you promise to support this person financially. We don't want this person to apply and get social assistance. Right. And so you made that commitment for at least three years. So now we're gonna hold you on that. And this is what we're gonna say, yeah, you gotta pay spousal support here for yeah. this person who is no longer probably you don't want to be in your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I think it can be classified as contractual entitlement to support. It's a little, it, it, uh, so Melvin, you sent me some stuff about this because I had a file, I don't know, a year and a half ago that where this came up and you had some stuff about that that you sent to me that I read. And, and since I've thought a lot about this kind of issue, it's kind of, it's kind of a complicated one because yes, there's this there's this requirement, this undertaking. And what, what is for sure is that if that person claims welfare, then the sponsor is going to pay it like that. That's for sure. That's in the contract written right into it Yeah. for spousal support. The person, the permanent resident also has a responsibility in that undertaking to become self-reliant. Uh -huh. 
And mm-hmm. so that muddies the water right away. Uh-huh. And um, so, cause then, okay, spouse support is payable, but how much, and is this person becoming self-reliant and, um, and just outside of the, the undertaking, um, just the regular, uh, law about spousal support of it, you know, there being an entitlement on other grounds that can also be possible and that can last longer than that three years. So it's a, it's a, it's definitely complicated, but I, I'm glad you brought it up because I wanted you to the, <laughs> the responsibilities yeah. of a sponsor, because yeah. that's, that's something that the people, you know, people get divorced as they're in the middle of immigration. And then it's like, well, what do we do with that? So thank you for covering that. Mm-hmm. The only other thing, uh, the only other question I had on my docket is Heather introduced you and in that you've you've done some things, some immigration uh, under the having to do with NAFTA, and so we don't have NAFTA anymore, right? It's replaced by what is it called? It's a U.S. Usman. They I still call it NAFTA. Just is easy for clients, to right? Yeah. yeah, it's like but now it's called Kus Kus. What is it called now? Well, it starts with the U.S. They, they oh. wanted to be first. Right. And then I think it's Mexico and then it's kind of it's like Uzmec or Uzmeca or I, I don't know, something like that. Yeah, it, it is called, uh, yeah, they have now different names for that. But um, the collective agreement that we have, the trade agreement between Canada, the United States uh-huh. and Mexico to allow workers to migrate between those countries and, and our trade relations and all this kind of stuff. So Uzmec, actually, sorry, Uzmec, Canada, United States, Mexico agreement. That's what it's called. I, I think in the U.S. it starts with it's, it's different. With the, okay, <laughs> United States, Canada, Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least in Canada we call it. I'm looking yeah, Canada, United States, Mexico agreement. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Trump would have signed it if it didn't start with the U.S. But um, so, what does that look like, and how does that work, and and what's like our our mobility uh, possibilities under that agreement? Well, in terms of the mobility, not much change in terms of immigration. Still, things you can still uh, Kuzma I was going to call it Kuzma allows for the uh, professionals from Canada and sorry from the United States and Mexico to come to Canada. There's a list of what are those professional lawyers are now, doctors. Um, so there's a list. If you one of those professionals on the list, then you can come to Canada and work under that agreement. That means for employer that the employer doesn't have to get what they what we call a labor market impact assessment, also called LMIA. Why is that so important? Because an LMIA is basically a document that Service Canada issued to the employer confirming that basically <laughs> there are no that the um that there are no Canadian or permanent resident who can do that job and that's where you need to bring a foreign national so you need this LMIA before you bring a foreign national you need a, a positive so the or neutral LMIA they say yes bringing a foreign national would not have a negative impact on the Canadian labor market. And we are persuaded that you have done everything you could. You made every effort to try to recruit a Canadian citizen permanent resident. So with NAFTA, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about LMIA. We don't have to worry about proving that. The employer simply say, here's a job offer. I wanna bring John Smith 
from United States to work here as an accountant in Edmonton. Not going to worry about proving that there's no accountant. It's as simple as that. NAFTA also allows for what we call an ICT, intracompany transferee, and for business visitor, and also allow for investors and trade. The ones that we use the most with NAFTA, is, as it's, at least in our practice here, is NAFTA professional, NAFTA ICT, when we bring people here being transferred from a Canadian uh, a branch that is in United States or Mexico. And NAFTA also works the other way around. It also allows Canadians to go and work in the United States or Mexico. Huh. So, and, and again, what if it facilitate the whole process because the employer doesn't need to apply for this labor market impact assessment. And as, as business immigration lawyers, that's what we always, when I have a client who is an employer say, I want to bring John to work in Canada. The first thing I see is if any trade, if there's any option to bring John without an LMI. Right. Without asking this employer to go through this long process called LMIA, because it's long, it's expensive, and it's unpredictable. If I have a trade agreement or some other option to bring this person with an LMIA, I'm going to go that route because it's faster, quickly, and that's what, especially in business, they want efficiency, I want things right. I want the person next week. Well, I want the person yesterday. Right. So it's, it's NAFTA, Kuzman allow for that. It, it facilitate the whole process so much better. I, I personally, I love Kuzman and NAFTA and I do this. I, in my practice, I've been, I have submitted a lot of application on the Kuzman. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so uh, I just wanted to confirm, it is in fact Kuzman in Canada. Okay. But USMCA. In the United States. In the United States and yeah. in Mexico, it's the Tratado entre Mexico, Estados Unidos, y Canada. So it's yeah. everyone puts their country first. Yep. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. I guess you were right. The president of the United States was, would have no sign that I have not been the United States first, perhaps. <laughs> That's funny. But no, I, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah. I mean, I just didn't know anything about it. I didn't realize that. Uh, that allows for that much flexibility or that much freedom of working in, in between the three countries. Yep, it does. It, it also allows um, uh, many Canadians say, I want to work in the United States. I say, I, I cannot practice U.S. immigration. I work, though, as a paralegal in a, doing immigration law. When I was in Toronto, work for a big accounting firm there where we were doing a lot of what we call outbound, people going from Canada into the United States. And so a lot of Canadians go into the United States under NAFTA. Huh. And so you basically, I mean, I'm trying to simplify things here, but uh, you basically have to have, here's my job offer from my employee in the United States. I meet all the qualifications to do that job. I have the license to do that job. And here it is. And, and you basically show up at the border with this information and the officer will process that and that's the same way i do it with my client i have done this many times many times i probably lost my there's no fingers in my hands or my to count but with that yeah there's something that i do a lot and um so i have many americans coming into canada and to work so basically i prepare here's the job offer i prepare a package for them which include the job offer 
It include an invitation from the employer. It include evidence that the uh, foreign nationals coming to Canada have the qualification, the education to perform that job. That's important. You want to show that. And if there's any license requirements here in Canada for that, I also provide evidence of that. I prepare all of this, handle it to the client, and the client show up at the border. Uh -huh. Once they come in the airplane, show that. I say, be prepared. You're going to be called to the second room. But if you're coming in your car, you're going to be pulled for probably one or two hours. But they're going to process. You pay 155 and you're going to get a work permit. That's it. Very simple. Wow. Very, the, 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 what is very important is if you're going to apply under one Kuzma, NAFTA, or Uzma, is make sure that you meet this qualification, meet the requirements for that job. And um, you have the job offer, right? Um, and obviously, there's one of the things that our officers are going to do: make sure that there's no criminality, that you still admissible to Canada. Right. If inadmissible to Canada, can no enter, right? And in a, you'd be surprised. A lot of Americans happens with my American clients. They have, oh, I have a DUI. That makes you inadmissible to enter Canada. So we have to file for a special permit or criminal rehab. Kim, you've been silent for a long time. Uh, any last questions before we wrap this up? I think you guys covered everything that I was thinking of. Eventually, one of you asked it. So I think I'm good for today. Uh, this is really interesting. What was your question, Evan? Sorry. My, my question was whether Kim had any questions. Oh. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Ken, I didn't, I didn't hear that, but now I heard Ken say, I think you cover everything. I think Heather and Evan were hungry today, and they, I think they got a lot covered. So this has been really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we cover everything. I think uh, I, I just wanted to say is for those who want to apply for a spousal sponsorship, I have five things that I wanted to say that are people sometimes they just don't think about it. And there's five things that you have to keep in mind when before you send your application, once you send your application, because those things is, makes a big difference. Make sure if you're going to submit your spousal application without the support of a legal expert, yes, you can do it. Evan did. <laughs> and you might be successful. But if you do so, make sure that you sign every single form. People sometimes miss and say, my application was returned, but simple, no signing the form. Make sure if you're married, provide marriage certificate. If you're in a common law relationship, make sure that you provide the evidence that you have cohabitated for one year or you're, you, you meet that threshold of one year. If you're a conjugal partner, evidence that you cannot be together for things that are beyond your control. Photos, we talk about this, the photos, don't underestimate the values of the photos. Photos are important. Photos, not only you and your partner, but photos with family member that shows this relationship is public, is no, has been, you have been accepted, you have been, you now part of another family as being the spouse. Uh, if you had kids, obviously photos of your kids, do a final check. Final check, the government provide a, a, a checklist. So do a final checklist and make sure you have all the form, all the supporting documents, you know, everything is correct, is spelling correctly, you're not missing any information. Then do you follow up. After you submit, I always people ask me, can I follow up with them? Yes, you can, but do not follow up right away. 
because you're gonna bother you're gonna bother mm -hmm. just to make your application i would say a good time to do a follow-up is once you get your acknowledgement or receive it's once you submit your spouse application two months three months you might receive you will receive an acknowledgement of receipt, a letter from the government confirming that they have received your application. That means your application is complete. That means that they will assign a number and an officer will start reviewing your application. So that would be the good time to do a follow-up. If you haven't heard, oh, I haven't received my medical request, my biometric, this is a good time to give them a call because what happened? I already, it's been three months since I received my acknowledgement of receipt. Nothing happens, right? Uh -huh. So that would be a good time to, and I would say last is be patient. Pers I mean, spousal sponsorship take a year. Be prepared financially. Uh, there's two options for you to submit a spousal sponsorship. You can do it in Canada, or you can do it outside Canada. <clears throat> I think if, if your spouse is able to live with you in Canada, that was the case of Evan, then, and that's the way to go, then you can bring your, uh, future spouse or your spouse already or your common law partner to be here in Canada with you and then you submit an in-Canada application. Um, you can request an open work permit but be prepared especially now with the pandemic that work permit might take some time so be prepared financially because your spouse might not be able to work while you, she's waiting or he's waiting. If you do an outside Canada application you can do that. You can do an outside Canada application sometimes are faster and um, it, it, if the person had, sometimes people decide I want to do an outside Canada application because I want to remain in my country until everything is sorted out and I have my permanent, that's okay. Just because you do an outside Canada application doesn't, does not mean you cannot come visit your spouse here or you you can still come here. People might, people might think that because I think in the United States it's different because uh, I know none of us here are practicing immigration in the U.S., but I've had um, I've had friends who got married in the U.S. and then left the country while their application was processing, and they could not cross the border until the application was done. They could not go to the, the U.S. would not let them in, right. uh, and so they were like stuck in Canada for a year and a half while that kind of finished, which was miserable for them. But in Canada, you're saying that's not the case. Well, in Canada, we have the if if your spouse do an in-Canada application, that person might leave the country. I think that happens with it. Might leave the country. They might be able to return, but it's not always the case. Not Sometimes guaranteed. if they do an in-Canada application and they're here with a visitor visa, but they happen to be from a country where they need a visitor, visitor visa to return, it might not be a good idea to go Okay. Home because they right. might not be able to return, it might happen. Right. They're not able to return. So there's no guarantee. I, when I do an in-Canada application, I tell the client, my suggestion is remain in Canada while the whole process mm. remain in Canada. If you need to leave the country, do it for an emergency or maybe a short trip, okay? If you're from a country where you need a visa to return to Canada, I strongly suggest not to leave. If you're from a country like Spain where you do not need a visa, sure, that's okay to do a trip outside of Canada. Keeping in mind that there's always that minor risk of the right. officer might say, no, you're not coming back. Right. And the reason of that, sorry, is because you have to, the officer say, if they thinking if your application for permanent residence is not approved, would you return home? 
Mm. You so when you enter Canada, you you so this you enter Canada as a visitor, and when you enter Canada as a visitor, you have to show the government that you will leave at the end of your stay. So if I'm allowed you to Canada for six months, would you leave at the end of the stay? And the answer is probably no, because you have a permanent resident pending. Right. And it shows that you, you want to stay in Canada. What you're saying, yeah, I'm coming as a visitor. It's what we call is dual intention. And I usually say to the client, tell the officer you have the dual intention to enter Canada as a visitor. And if for any reason it's not approved, you will leave the Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Melvin, this has been, uh, this has been great. I don't know what, what you and uh, like Kim, you and Heather think, but I think you've given such a great overview of immigration. Like, I, um, I, yeah, I think anybody who's thinking about immigrating, this is going to, this is a great episode to get like an overview of everything. So thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hopefully we, I can be invited again to talk about another topic on immigration, <laughs> a different topic. Um, oh, for sure. Heather, absolutely. Once you say those magic words, you're on Heather's hit list. Yeah, you're on my radar. <laughs> There's a topic that I enjoy and I call it the lonely visa. I was thinking lonely visa. The lonely visa. Yeah. When, um, I was, yeah, it's basically some, some Canadians or permanent resident are here. I have no family member here in Canada, no one to potentially be a sponsor. And, and in that case, they might be able to sponsor even a cousin, even a brother that generally they cannot sponsor. But we can say that for another time. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. No, thank you, Kim. Thank you, Evan. And thank you, Heather. Yeah, our pleasure. This this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening or watching, however you found us today. If you have any questions you'd like us to address on upcoming episodes, please send an an email to accesstojusticepodcast at gmail.com. That's access, the number two, justicepodcast at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to get you an answer. Thanks. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallorick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFP, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turned water.